Good morning, and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of abridged talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today we will have the University of Oxford's Professor Dobing Ma back and analyze China's road to unity over the years. He has compiled a large amount of data about political regimes and incidences of warfare, and he argues that the mythical historical Chinese rest in China's unique geography. Ideology of the single unified ruler for all, and the institution of direct administrative rule. He was invited by the University of Hong Kong to give a talk entitled "States and Wars: China's Long March Towards Unity and Its Long-Term Consequences." There has been no shortage of, of hypotheses. Okay, there's been some really recent work, both empirical work as well as historical work. And some of the empirical work recently, I will I will show later on, published in top journals, trying to explain why China was unified. So a lot of people are talking about why, what was the consequence of Chinese unity, right? Part of the outcome is stagnation, and there's also a piece of prosperity coming out of it. Well, we are proposing something here that's very, very ambitious. Maybe、uh, it's it's both economists, historians speaking at the same time with mixed voices. And it may be too ambitious. To tell me if that is too ambitious to some degree, and we try to hopefully correct what we think is is oversimplification, oversimplified explanation by relying on, for example, geography alone. So we are making what we call tripod hypotheses, and some of them can be tested, and some of them cannot be tested, but at least they can be quantified. Is the reason China remained unified solely had to do with geography, which I talk about a little bit. But also, one of the things, the geography itself was a ideological construct, and with certain institutions that evolved. I will tell you what these institutions, geography,、uh, ideology were, and all of that is working through the main channel. That's the channel we can actually test econometrically, is the warfare, and particularly agrarian nomadic warfare. So, and and very important that these three things work together. So, what we are seeing here is not, you know, as as. A lot of economists try to identify the causal link and so on. We are here arguing things are co-evolving. There's something there's causal link, but a lot of it is, is co-evolution. Okay, so there's a layout of the mechanism. That's what we were trying to say. I will show you what the geography is. And then, first of all, when you have warfare, try to unify, which leads to, in the case of China, we know that very well. Is resource mobilization lead to political centralization? In particular, in China, that's one of the important institution. Is direct administrative rule in Chinese the Junxianzi, right? And with Junxianzi come with the Kejujutsu, the civil service examination. So all these things developed fairly early on, and with that comes with actually private property rights, so smallholding peasantry, and all of these things that come together. So that's the set of institutions that come together. This is what we talk about agrarian China, and one of the big problems I will get to the geography is this agrarian China、uh, stop in the. Uh, nomadic frontier, which is roughly divided,、uh, defined by the Great Wall. Okay, once the combination, eventually unification, came through the agrarian nomadic synthesis. Okay, or sometimes there's also cultural identity that comes in, and in particular, that will lead to a merging of these two forces, and that merging leads to a, a expansion of cultural identity, which, in particular, the idea of the Huayi and the Chinese and, and barbarians. So, as you can see, what we emphasize here is that it's not just geography. The ideology had to adapt to really accommodate or create a new form of legitimacy. 
So as I would tell you a little bit, we will uh, put together 2,000 years of data. In particular, this time, the thing that we have added you, uh, talking with, uh, with my co-author, is we are able to use the textual analysis to begin to extract the word frequency. So in some sense, we are not able to test ecometrically the role of ideology, but we are able to quantify, to show the idea of unity is, is very, very occupied, very central place. We use the 20, ISIS, 24 historical annals to really construct the word frequency of a certain keyword. And we collect the warfare data. Now, those data have been uh, used, collected for a long time, but we have a different ways of sorting them out. Okay. One of the things we want to argue is the idea of a single unified China. In Chinese, everybody knows the words called Da Yitong, right? That idea came very, very early. They come in the Chenchu Zhangguo, the spring and autumn period. And there's the idea of everything under all in one family under the heaven. Okay. That particular idea was very, very important. And also there is a geographical, maybe sometimes imagined space. This is Zhou right? The nine different states. Okay. And with the Chinese were the center Hua and the barbarians. I will show you a, a, a picture of exactly describing this. I want to argue that this is a geographic concept, but this is also ideological construct. So this is what distinguished from some other studies to use geography only. But that, of course, that is concept is very, very tricky. Now, you can see that particular concept is China's in the middle, the Huayi, right? And there's four barbarians on four sides. So there has, it's a cosmological concept to some degree. And this is the English translation. You will see, I think, later on, the archaeology will show that much more clearly. One of the things why, when I'm, I would say, talk about environmental circumscription. So this is a fairly closed space. And the reason China remained unified more easily than the Roman Empire, because it was the, at the edge of the Eurasian Empire, there's Pacific Ocean, so that's blocked. There's Himalaya, that's blocked on the west. Right? The south, there's very, very little challenge of, of political forces. The only big challenge is coming from the north, and that's the way the nomadic nomads were, semi-nomads were. That's where the Great Wall was built. Okay, So there is the idea of distinction between Chinese and the barbarians. So this is something that will come back again and again. Now, I want to emphasize the ideologies beginning to adapt, constantly changing the idea of barbarian Chinese, this particularly become a very important issue when it comes to the last dynasty by Qing dynasty, which itself is supposedly a barbarian idea. Okay, so geography matters here. This is the, the blue area is the agrarian region. And the other areas are nomadic or semi-nomadic. That's where the agrarian system was very hard to be enforced there. You know, the agrarian system has to come to with bureaucracy, with taxation, with all these things. And, and private property rights. But outside the Great Wall, also these areas that are very, very difficult. Okay, so Chinese system was not able to expand and control these areas. Eventually, it was the nomads that come into China and took over them. So we start very quickly. This is for people who know history very early on, but all we did, we quantified them, is the idea of the the idea of the grand, grand unity, Da Yitong, came in the feudal age, right? Fengjian Tixi, it's actually connected to the Confucian ideology. And then unity, we all know, was achieved in the Qing dynasty. And then one of the key ingredients of success of the Zhongxianzi is direct administrative rule rather than feng, 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 feng zidu, rather than the delegation. So this is something very important. And the ideology people began to talk about the Confucians was the ideology, but the actual substance of Chinese rule is fa jia, is the legalist rule. Okay, that's something very important. Legalist rule emphasize on, and this is what Qing Hui was talking about, 
I think Zhao Dingxing is using the term Confucian legalist synthesis. Okay. This is the war, this number of states and the warring states. You know, you can see the warfare was going, and then eventually the seven, all the states collapse into one, and that's fairly well known. We know that. Okay. So I need to find the original Chinese version of this. One of the things I want to emphasize when Qing unified, Qing Tao unified China, the unification itself became the legitimacy of the state. That's very, very important, right? We are they're able to acknowledge six kingdoms and remember the four barbarians, four categories of barbarians are four sites that you really establish the legitimacy of a Chinese rule and restore peace for all under the heaven. Okay, this is something that uh, the legitimacy that came out uh, again and again later on. So this is the first time we are able to, to a certain degree, not able to completely test it, but we are able to do at least some quantification is the use the words of Tong, Tong Yi, unified. Okay? So we use the 24 historical annals. The last one stopped it. As you know, Qing dynasty is the last dynasty. There was no, the 24 historical annals did not include Qing dynasty. So it stopped at Ming dynasty. This is all the frequency of the word, the percentage of the word Tong, Tong Yi, unified. And you can see that occupied a very central place. Most interesting is in the Song Dynasty. It suddenly rose very high. So there's a very, very, you know, in, in the paper we describe how we extracted that particular set of data. But one thing that's quite clear, the idea of unification remained a central place in Chinese ideology. Now, we want to, this is about sometimes like 0.1% to 0.3% in the total number of 24 historical annals how important they are. So we actually look at the Wuzhengs, right, which is another important element of Chinese legitimacy, right? That's about 0.13, I mean, this is a thousand percent, right? And and also compared with others, the Huangdi and Confucian, I mean, these are very, very common uh, terms. And, you know, the, the idea of unification remained very, very strong. So that gives some kind of magnitude how important this is. Okay. So the next step was we began to test them. Okay, we look at states. One of the things, remember, we, we use this is the Qing 1820 map. So this is a much larger Chinese territory. I mean, for us, we are not saying this should be the right territory or wrong territory, but we're only interested in the idea of the nomadic and agrarian frontier that, that's both are included. So the square parts are the capitals of different dynasties, and these triangle is the capital of different dynasties by the nomadic regime. So that allows to actually calculate the number of nomadic and agrarian regimes throughout Chinese history to get an idea of unification and fragmentation. And so the blue was the number of agrarian regimes. So one of the things that's really quite important, any regime establishing capital inside the Great War is considered agrarian regime. So, for example, the Manchu Mongol dynasty, when they set up a capital outside, they're considered nomadic regimes. But once they move in, they're considered agrarian regimes. We will other ways to play around with the concept using ethnicity. Here, we're only using the, the institutional concept. Once they move into inside capital, they begin to use agrarian means of controlling, the, you know, of ruling, which is bureaucracy, civil service examination, all of that. But you can see very clearly over time, the the about three phases unification, two phases fragmentation. So China was not always unified. That's very, very important. You know, it's not like China was from the very beginning could have been unified. And and I think when, when I was giving a talk, you know, Gertrude was the one that made that point. China was more fragmented than unified uh, throughout history, which almost landed him in trouble and so on. Right? But 
clearly, certainly by the Mongol, by the 13th uh, century, China was becoming more and more unified and eventually collapsed basically into one particular, you know, we know that's the Qing Empire, Ming Empire, and so on, okay? The usual explanation, which we also incorporate, why China to a certain degree is unified, and this is a this is something I got from Zhao Dixin's book, and that's actually quite interesting. So one of the reasons why the unification to a certain degree was unified by a state on the West, right? So the Qing was a, was very much a half nomadic, very close, and the center of Chinese civilization was sort of here. That's where actually was Hunan provinces and, and all of that. So these states were fighting, but it was eventually a state from the West that was unified everything. And that, to some degree, is quite easy to understand as we would see that the unification coming from the West because it was on the edge. So where all these states were fighting on all sides, they only need to fight on one side. And of course, again, we know the Qing dynasty was in the center of the Guanzhong Pingyuan, right? So this is something that's very, very crucial. And then you have the nomadic threat. So eventually, this is uh, the geography argument that will really come in. So you can see that there is an overall Eurasian steppe. That's where the massive different kind of nomadic empires really come in that put a lot of pressure on, particularly on China. So you can see Europe was far away from the pressure. So these have given a lot of pressure towards a unified empire. The agrarian empire was under this pressure. So this is one reason we will see that, first of all, you know, Xi'an was the place that eventually unified. Secondly, most of the unification coming from northern China rather than coming from the south, because the, that's where the, most of the threat was coming from. Okay. That's where the warfare was really coming into play. That was very important. You know, there's a lot of material probably because there's a lot more new research. This is coming from a recent work by Koyama and Duan Wei and other people. You know, one argument, for example, in terms of geography is that Europe was mountainous and China had these long rivers that linked together. But it turned out China actually was much more mountainous than Europe. And a lot of people didn't realize how, how mountainous, how hilly China was. And in the times, of, you know, for example, the entire Sichuan Pendi, right, was very difficult to get into. That's why it remained independent for a long time. People didn't realize, for example, Sanxi province was a very natural place for, you know, set, setting up as a, as a kingdom. And that's, that's exactly what happened in Chinese history. So it's not naturally true that Chinese geography was particularly favorable to unification, certainly not in terms of the mountainous areas. Their argument, which is consistent with what we are doing, so the, the only thing was that paper, this is a paper that just came out in a, in a QJE recently, using entirely simulation and arguing the reason China was unified, not because of the mountains and everything, the reason China was they have a very northern, flat northern Chinese plain they allowed, particularly the Qing dynasty, control. Once you go from the Guanzhong and you go to the northern Chinese plain, you had a, a very large state. And that large state began to dominate. And after, once the Grand Canal was built, you get into the Luoyangzi. So these two large plains allowed China to basically have these agricultural surplus and everything to build up a very large state. And this is where the, the argument was mainly coming from. The control was coming from the north. Now, we... We are not, you know, we are showing that was the process because in China, the original state was quite small, actually. It was focused on here, but over time, it slowly, gradually expand. So this is the expansion that had to come with ideology change, which we will show. So this is something that we enjoy doing is that because of that expansion, so the Chinese capital was shifting slowly towards the east. This is, I believe, the longitude of agrarian capitals. So this Beijing became a capital much more later, and that was 
partly because they tried to control the northern Chinese plain, and then they began to fight against it with the Mongols and the Ming setting up a capital in Beijing. And, that, and of course, the Qing, that became really, really quite permanent later on. Okay, So we could do that for the latitude as well. You can see the Chinese was moving slowly towards the north. So there was slow movement towards east and north to control much larger areas of the geographic space. You can see the so-called China itself was expanding. When you're expanding, how do you deal with the much larger number of different kinds of people? In particular, we talk about nomadic people. That's where I think I will talk about the ideology will really come in. You're listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Professor De Bing Ma from the University of Oxford giving us some background information about China's unification over the centuries. Next, he will analyze the ideology of occupying land and the warfare data he has gathered. I think for some of you who know the, you know, that's one of the people who read our, our paper, gave comments, uh, you know, about the idea of, you know, especially the new Qing history. So you can see this is the Ming Dynasty. This Qing has vastly expanded, right? There's a long debate about what is the nature of the Qing regime. Is it really a Chinese dynasty, Han Chinese dynasty, as you have thought about it? And this is now becoming somewhat a controversial topic. Again, for people who know history very well, you don't need me to explain that, but there's the, the most interesting debate is between Yongzhen Emperor and I think one of the prisoners, I think Zheng Qing, right? And the Da Yi Jue Mi Lu. And this is, of course, quite amusing that the emperor is having a debate with his prisoner. So I wonder how much a debate that is. <laughs> that person was basically captured in prison and the emperor is trying to persuade him that I'm right. But one thing that's important is that this Zhengji was trying to actually try to talk to the offspring of Yue Fei, right? And to have him rebel against the Qing. Because he said, you know, the Qing dynasty was not authentically Han Chinese dynasty. And it, it turned out that the, the offspring of Yue Fei uh, turned around against him <laughs> and just so got him imprisoned. And, and then he did a conversation with it. And one of the things the Yongzhen emperor was arguing is today Qing was much bigger. Yes, we come from northeastern China, you know, by because of that calling us barbarians, that's not fair because even Confucius themselves maybe coming from a barbarian area today. Sun, the most, you know, Zhou, Zhou Wenwang, they are coming from an area that were not originally the core Chinese civilizations, okay? The area, for example, like the middle Yangtze was really considered barbarian areas, okay? So this is Yongzhen's defense that we are just as good as any Chinese rulers. And of course, Qing was probably one of the smartest, I think the new Qing history, they talk about four identities of the Qing rulers, right? They are Chinese emperors, they are the protectors of the Tibetan religion, Uyghurs, and, and the Mongols, right? So you they really play these four identities very well, well but they, to the Chinese, they, they are very well versed in China. But one of the things that's very important is the argument by Yongzhen, right? Is, look, we are so much bigger than before. This should be the greatest blessing for the Chinese people, okay? We got territories far beyond any of the Song, any of the Ming, or they have, they have done before. So the Qing began to justify legitimacy 
not just for for being Chinese rulers, but also we are much bigger. So the size became a really big issue. So there, there's a lot of, uh, and we, we know that's very well. The Qing began to also use, the channel is very well known for using the censorship to control the whole dialogue about any mention of Qing as a barbarians will be prohibited strictly, right? And the Siku Quanshu was compiled in a way that any of these discussions was completely purged. So you can see there's a massive 18th century propaganda control that, uh, you know, in a very, very large scale. Okay. In the paper, we actually talk about the idea of the Qing being the authentic ruler became so deeply entrenched that the most famous is the is the Taiping Rebellion, and it was suppressed by, by Chen Guofan and Li Hongzhang. And those are Han Chinese, you know, bureaucrats who actually suppressed to defend the Qing regime. That shows that they really think that was really the, the authentic rulers. Okay, so I want to show you that this ideology part was quite important, that they were able to, when the empire was expanding, they were able to also change the rhetoric and in order to justify the, uh, the empire. Okay, so let me run through the data we have. And the warfare data is we differentiate into three types of warfare. One is the warfare fought between the agrarian regimes and nomadic regimes. And the, the other civil wars, which is warfare fought between two agrarian regimes, for like the Sangui Yi, right? The three kingdoms, they are fought all between agrarian regimes and so on. And then there's rebellions. Rebellions are fought by a regime without capital. So Taiping Rebellion was considered rebellion. However, once they established a capital in Nanjing, they fought against the Qing, that becomes civil war. So it's a, it's a shifting, you know, we, I will explain to you why we specifically divide the, into these three type of warfare. Our argument is very simple. Eventually, it's the agrarian nomadic warfare that remained constant. When empires unified, civil war slowly was disappearing, okay? The only thing that's happening is rebellions that was there, which was very, you know, episodic. So we have these warfare data now defining these three types. This is agrarian nomadic warfare. You can see that's the blue part. This is the civil war. And this is the rebellions. The rebellions sometimes just shot up very, very quickly and then they just, just drop down. Okay. And you can see the agrarian nomadic warfare. So this is, this is much better. This is 100 year average. So agrarian nomadic warfare was about 70, 80% of the total warfare all the time. Okay. So the, this particular pressure coming from the north was the unifying force. And because these regimes were considered barbarian, that's very important, right? That served the force to unify China. So you, I think you, you heard of the those things are very, very important. As soon as you identify external enemy, and that's very, very important to use that as a way of promoting internal cohesion. So that was the external warfare that was always there, that you could see the civil war that was rising and fall, and the civil war was slowly disappearing because China was becoming more unified, okay? You have very little civil wars afterward. This is something, you know, we didn't play a lot in this one. But in the other cases that in Europe is mostly civil wars, much more organized warfare. In China, in the end, either have Bulgarian nomadic warfare, they're all rebellions, which are not very well organized. Okay. Secret society, religious, all these things. Uh, the civil war slowly disappeared after the Song dynasty. Okay. Which of course had all kinds of implications. And this is the data we show most of the war were fought along the, this particular area, the agrarian nomadic warfare. I will just show you the result of this, that agrarian nomadic warfare led to the reduction 
of the number of states led to the increase in the size of states. And this we can test econometrically using autoregressive distributed lag model. So these are the different variables that we have. These are the warfare and, and size of agrarian regimes. So we can see this is the size of the average size of state throughout the time. For example, this is the Mongol dynasty, right? That's the larger size. This is the Qing dynasty. So we use the Qing dynasty as size. Over time, the China as a state, the average size of state was getting bigger. Before, there were multiple states, right? Each state was smaller and they were getting also bigger. This is the same as the number of states uh, to some degree. So this is the result we're going to say. So the dependent variable size of agrarian regimes, the number of agrarian regimes, you could see the agrarian nomadic warfare is the only variable that's significant. That is, end up increasing the size of agrarian regimes, making unification more likely, okay? Reducing the number of agrarian states, which means that fewer and fewer states are able to survive because of the agrarian nomadic warfare. The other warfare is less significant, okay? So that is one result that we come up. I mean, I'm not going to go into great details. We actually test some causality showing it's not the other way around. It is the warfare causing the unification, not sometimes unification could also cause warfare, right? So we use the temperature as a, as a variation and that turned out to be, that is a very good instrument, the deviation for the average temperature. And we can see the nomadic regimes were not affected, okay? So one thing that's quite important, nomadic regimes was on a very different institutions, not to mention ideologies, right? So they have, it's a very mobile structure there are very relatively little fixed investment in, you know, capital. And so the way they rule is very, very different is grazing land and so on. But most of the nomadic regime, but one thing, of course, we all know they have military advantage once they, because of the horses and also, and we know that story very well. One of the, you know, despite all the great story, we, we talk about Song Dynasty, UFA, and they are just not, not enough to, uh, you know, we, despite all the hero heroism, I don't know. I mean, part of the problem is Song never get proper horses, right? And and they, you know, there's a there's trading of horses and so on, but it just didn't work very well. And they tried to have people raise horses, but it was very, very difficult. Okay, I just want to sort of conclude that hopefully we have a more comprehensive explanation. We go beyond a little bit, just a geography argument, but we think geography is what started all of this. And I mean, not in this paper, you know, like I was here uh, maybe a, a month ago, I presented a paper on Japan. So one of the things, there's also interesting counterfactual test. Japan was a case that adopted Chinese ideology, but never faced nomadic threat. Uh, you can see one of the things that's quite interesting is Japan remained a feudal structure. So Japan did not have the Junxianzi, did not have the Koji system. So that's a very interesting counter test in that regard. So. I want to end by saying that in many ways, China at the edge of it is becoming what's called some kind of a cage that's very important for absolutism to rise. So China was able to slowly expand the concept of Jiuzhou, right? So this is all under one heaven. And they were able to have centralized bureaucracy, certain repression, right? So by the Qing dynasty censorship, well, the repression came very early, the Qing, Qing dynasty, Fensu Kunru. We all know that very, very well. So all that will work well when you have a closed system, right? So if you have multiple states like in Europe, that's very, very difficult to control. And if everybody's speaking language each other could understand, you know, you control Germany, people ran to Italy and all of that. But in China, within one language, they are much better able to control. 
And the northern frontier was the only one that gave them trouble. That's why the Great Wall was was there. And that's where eventually they achieved this agrarian nomadic synthesis and Chinese barbarian synthesis. That's very important. Hawaii, they constantly shift the idea of Hawaii, right? They accommodate a much larger state. And Chinese southern frontier was not an issue before. They were never challenged until the Opium War. And that's, of course, Chinese would begin to redefine because the first thing they call them, these Western imperials, is Yi, right? So if you remember the famous word by Hui Yuan, Yi zi dao, huan zi yi zi sheng. So all these things are, and, and that, of course, the same idea, same language was used by Japanese, used by, later on by the Koreans to counter these are the new external enemies that we have. And so this particular ideology was extended beyond this. That was Professor Deving Ma from the University of Oxford. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters.